0: Let's continue our study of Psalm 74. Psalm 74, a song for calamity. The psalmist Asaph has penned this psalm during a time of crisis. And that crisis is the destruction of the temple and the dispersion of the Israelites. Now, we can pinpoint this to approximately 586 B.C. or the years following. 586 B.C., Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem and to the kingdom of Judah, destroying it and subjugating the people into captivity. Now, these sons of Asaph lament the calamity that has befallen the people, and they struggle to determine how the calamity is part of God's plan and program for his people. Now, again, we're looking at this from Asaph's perspective. From our perspective, it's very simple. We look and say, well, look at all that you've done. Look at the fact that God's people, the Israelites, or in this case, the kingdom of Judah, did not listen to God. They did not obey God. They did not worship God as he said they should worship him. But from their perspective, they're living in the midst of it, and they're scratching their heads. How did this happen? And in many ways, it's just like us. When God's judgment or God's chastisement comes upon us, you know, our immediate reaction is, well, how did that happen? And perhaps we have to sit back and take a hard look at ourselves and ask, is there sin in my life? Has there been some disobedience? Now, again, that's not to say that every calamity is the result of disobedience. But I think it's a healthy first exam for all of us to take to determine, is this God's chastening hand? Now, calamity can happen for other reasons uh, that are part of God's will. And if it's not sin in our life, then we need to sit back and consider, okay, God, what are you trying to do? Uh, What's your plan here? What's your purpose? And that's where Asaph's at. He's trying to determine how this is part of God's plan and God's program. And I have no doubt that, like the sons of Asaph, we as believers also make our struggle rather with that same question. Lord what is going on here? How is this part of your plan? How is this part of your program? Now we noted last time in verses 1 through 11 that Asaph looks at the present miseries. The present miseries. And he begins in verses 1 and 2 with a supplication. Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance, and this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. And then in verses 3 to 8 we saw sacrilege. Turn your footsteps towards the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. Your adversaries have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own standards for signs. It seems as if one had lifted up his axe in a forest of trees, and now all its carved work, They smash with hatchet and hammers. They have burned your sanctuary to the ground. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their heart, let us completely subdue them. They have burned all the meeting places of God in the land. And then uh, verses 9 through 11, we came to the suspension. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, nor is there any among us who knows how long. How long, O God, will the adversary revile, and the enemy spurn your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, from within your bosom? Destroy them. The sons of Asaph have laid out their present miseries, but that brings them now to a point where they reflect on God's past mercies in verses 12 to 17. And I believe that this is a right and healthy response on the part of any believer in the midst of calamity. You know, we can look at the present misery, we can lay out to God the the woe is me and what is going on and all that, but at some point we have to now look back at God's past mercies. Let's look at verse 12. Yet God is my king from of old who works deeds of deliverance in the midst of the earth. Now here's the experience. As he reflects on his past mercies, his experience is God is my king of old. Notice he confesses his faith in Yahweh. He addresses him at in verses, the beginning in verse 13 to 17, but here he's confessing in verse 12 his experience. He is my king from of old. He works deeds of deliverance, deeds of salvation. Now the fact that God is his king, my king, that personal pronoun, witnesses to the fact that the sons of Asaph, these Levites, see themselves as the servants of Yahweh. 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, the phrase is used to assert that God is the true king of his people, uh, that he has sovereignty over them. So Yahweh is Israel's king. He's their leader. Uh, He goes before them into battle, and he works their deliverance. Now, the word deliverance is singular in the English, but in the Uh, Hebrew text, it's actually plurals. It's the fullness or the complete deliverance. So he works deeds of complete deliverance. When God delivers, he doesn't do a half job. He just doesn't go partial It's okay, well, that's sufficient. He goes all the way and completely delivers people. He brought them up out of Egypt. He just didn't bring them to the Red Sea and leave them there. He made them cross the Red Sea. He just didn't leave them in the wilderness. He then delivered them into the promised land. He just didn't leave them in the promised land to be destroyed by their enemies. He went forth and totally annihilated their enemies. And so, the idea of deliverance is that it's complete. And when we think about our deliverance from sin, we need to understand that God delivers us completely, utterly. Okay, He just didn't say, well, let me just uh, partially save you. Let me just partially rescue from Satan and sin's dominion and partially from the curse. It's a complete deliverance. Now, we're not, we have not yet experienced the fullness of that deliverance. We'll experience the fullness of our redemption once we... Pass from this earthly plane and into that heavenly plane. Then we'll experience our, our com- uh, the completion of our redemption. But guaranteed, your redemption, my redemption, will be made complete. God is not in the business of doing half jobs. He does the full job. Uh, and so, um, when we look here at uh, this last statement in the midst of the earth, uh, basically, you know, it's it's it's. Uh, looking back at God's complete deliverance in the midst of human history, okay? Uh, In other words, uh, God's victories are not some pagan myth passed down over the generations that may reflect some kernel of truth but that have been conflated or corrupted. No, uh, the the history of God's deliverance in the world, in the earth, uh, is... True and real and accurate. Now, in verses 13 to 15, they begin to enumerate. There's an enumeration here of what God has done. Again, we're looking at the past mercies. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea monsters in the water. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. You broke open springs and torrents. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Now, he's reflecting, he's enumerating God's past mercies, what God has done. Now, what we see here is the mighty deeds of God. And he split the sea, uh, destroying the heads of the sea monsters. He crushed the heads of Leviathan. Now, what I need to understand here is that uh, the uh, psalmists are recounting a pagan myth, the Lotan myth, that's L O T A N, or the Leviathan myth, uh, and using this pagan myth, this well known pagan myth, and using it to describe God's work of victory. Now, if the psalmist uses this myth, now what is a myth? Well, we think of myth as some made up fairy tale. Myth is not a made up fairy tale. A myth is a actual historical event that uh, was passed down to the generations before the advent of written history, before written history was oral history. Now, the problem with the pagan myths is that those uh, historical events would be passed down, but as they were passed down, they would be conflated and corrupted. But many times throughout the Psalms and the Prophets, uh, we see these pagan myths being co-opted, and used uh, to depict uh, God's victory over uh, some god of chaos. And so, just to recap the Lotan myth, or the Leviathan myth, uh, which was very popular in Babylon, and amongst the Canaanite culture, so Israel would have been very familiar with it. Uh, The god of chaos, uh, the sea monster, Leviathan, rose up out of the waters, out of the sea, and challenged the high God, the true God. And then the true God comes along and destroys the God of chaos. Now, without spending hours going through all of the details and so forth of this, we can summarize it this way. The God of chaos is Satan, okay? He rises up out of the waters, He rises up out of the sea. Uh, which is a picture of him rising up out of the earth. Remember, Satan was cast down to earth because of his pride. And he rises up and he challenges the true God, Yahweh. But the true God, Yahweh, is going to destroy the serpent. Now, they look back at creation and see that, yes, at creation, God destroyed the serpent. He kicked him out of heaven. There will be a future point where he will be cast down into the lake of fire. And if we cross-reference this with Isaiah 27, 1, we cross-reference this with Psalm 49, or uh, Job 41, and we can also cross-reference it with Revelation chapter 12, we have a confirmation that Leviathan is this dragon, which that's what Leviathan is in the Lotan myth. He's this dragon, he's that old serpent that appeared in the garden, uh, to deceive man and to challenge God's authority, and so what we have here is the adaptation of the myth to describe how he broke the heads of the sea monster or the the dragon, how he crushed the heads of Leviathan. Now again, let's just tie some of this together. So Leviathan is a is a sea dragon. Uh, Leviathan is pictured in the Lotan myth as having seven heads. Look at Revelation chapter twelve. How many heads does the dragon the 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 Satan have? Seven heads. Now go back to Genesis chapter 3 when when God is cursing the serpent and he makes the prophecy Genesis 3:15 that's that the seed of the woman which we know is the Messiah will crush what? The head of Satan. So in in one sense these past mercies look back to God defeating satan but it's also looking ahead to god's defeat of satan now why would a why would they look ahead at a future event but see it as a past event because to god there is no such thing as time all aspects past present and future have already happened for god so this is a guarantee That God has already defeated Satan. Christ has already defeated. He's already crushed Satan. He's already destroyed him. Already cast him into the lake of fire. We're just playing catch up to what God has already done. And so, he enumerates God's past victories. God defeated Satan. And God can defeat any of our foes. Verse 16 to 17, the as we're looking back at the past mercies, we see enjoyment. Yours is the day. Yours is also the night. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have established all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. So the God who rules the waters, the God who defeated uh, the sea serpent, uh, he has created the fountains or the springs. He's created the floods, the streams. He is, he's the one who releases the water. He is also the one who dried up the waters. As we think back to uh, the Exodus, he rules the day and the night, the light, the lesser light, the greater light, the sun and the moon. He established the borders, the physical boundaries, the political boundaries of earth. Uh, He creates the summer and winter, the dry and the rainy seasons. That was the two seasons that Israel experienced in verse 17. So all of God's creation, all of history, witnesses to an enjoyment of God's Rule. Uh, God is king, and we see that in creation. So we see God's rule uh, in his defeat of our enemies, and chiefly our main enemy, Satan. We also see and can enjoy God's mercies in the world, in the created realm. The fact that the sun rises and the sun sets, the moon rises, the moon sets, the tides ebb and flow, the seasons come and go. All of that is a testimony that God is in control. And it's a testimony of God's mercy. And then finally we come to 18 to 23 and we have a perspective meditation. A perspective meditation. Now this meditation begins with an exasperation in verse 18. Remember this, O Lord that the enemy has reviled and a foolish people has spurned your name. You know, they've confessed their faith in Yahweh as their king. They've recalled God's deliverance from their enemies. They've they've recalled God's mercies and creation. And and now, you know, Lord, you're being faced with blasphemers. Have compassion. There is a covenant And please respond as we worship you. Now, that's the breakdown of verses 18, 19, 20, and 21. But in this exasperation, God, look, they've reproached you. They've blasphemed you. This foolish people. Now the word foolish designates these people as those who have, who say there is no God. They have no ethical value. They have no spiritual reality. They are idolaters, and they've come in here and destroyed the temple and made a mockery of all the things that have been set apart to worship you, and have berated you as some weak minor god. God, you have been defiled, and so now, Lord to turn your wrath from Israel to our enemy Babylon. Lord, how can you put up with this cursed people? Verses 19 to 21, exposure. Do not deliver the soul of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your afflicted forever. Consider the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence Let not the oppressed return dishonored. Let the afflicted and needy praise your name. Now, the turtle dove here is this little frail bird that is a picture of Israel. Now, the turtle dove comes from the sacrificial system. It was the uh, smallest sacrifice that the poorest person could make. And Asaph, or the sons of Asaph, paint Israel as this frail little bird, the, the turtle dove. And then Babylon is this wild beast who is going to uh, come after us and tear us apart and afflict us and so forth. And so, you know, uh, do not deliver the soul. Do not sacrifice your turtle dove to this wild beast. You know, we've been exposed. Uh, You know, we're 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 being uh, slaughtered. Uh, We're we're being destroyed we're being wiped out by this wild beast lord how long will this go on do not forget us forever and again remember it's not that god would and it hasn't been forever but when you're in the midst of that calamity it just seems like it's never going to end god don't forget the life of the afflicted that's who israel was at that point they were the afflicted and so so often in calamity we are the afflicted. And so we too need to cry out, Lord, don't let us be devoured by the enemy, by that roaring lion uh, who's seeking to devour us. Whether that enemy is the devil, or whether that enemy is something in the world, or whether that enemy is even our own flesh. And so in verse 20, consider the covenant, God, you made a covenant with with us. You promised us. You gave us your word. And so, as we repent, remember your word, restore us again, uh, keep the promise that you have made with us. Let us not return to the land dishonored or afflicted. And Lord, we're ready to praise your name. We're ready to come back and give you true and proper worship. And that's key because what sent them into their calamity was improper worship. You know, not worshiping the day when he wanted to be worshiped, not worshiping in the place he wanted to be worshiped. Listen, folks, when we don't worship God the way he wants to be worshiped, don't be surprised when calamity comes your way. Finally, in verses 22 to 23, we have an entreaty. Arise, O God, and plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you all day long. Do not forget the voice of your adversaries, the uproar of those who rise against you, which ascends continually. You know, they've made their case. God, you've got to act. We know. We, you see our present miseries. We know what you've done in the past, the past mercies. Now we need you to act. And so in verse 20, they, 22, rather, they call on him, Arise, uh, stand up. From the throne. Execute judgment. Psalm 7, 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself because of the rage of my enemies. Rise up for me to the judgment you have commanded. And so they're pleading God to lift up his wrath against the enemy, against their oppressors. Vindicate his people, and in vindicating them, he will vindicate himself. Because, again, they are blaspheming your name, your cause is at stake. And so, Lord, we need you to save us. We've languished in our sin. We've languished under your wrath. And so, Father, we confess it and now cry out to remember us, restore us to our former state, restore us to our former glory. They're crying out and asking, Father, send salvation. Again, God is to remember the daily, the continual, the ongoing reproach of the foolish man, of, of these idolatrous people. And uh, Lord, you cannot let that go on. God, keep your wrath upon Israel and keep receiving the noise, the blasphemy of the nations, or turn your wrath upon those blasphemers and receive the praise of your people that is the sons of asaph's final words lord your glory is at stake and lord we need you to step up and act don't just deliver us but defend yourself you know friends when calamity comes our way let's not despair let's not let's not fall into the to the nihilism of the age in which we live Let's not embrace the moral relativism or the cultural relativism of our day. Rather, let us pray. Yes, let us lay out to God our, our present misery. Yes, we can lay out to God the reality of what we're struggling with. But then we need to come to the place in prayer where we reflect on his past mercies. And as we reflect on his past mercies, our faith will be renewed. And in the renewal of our faith, it will lead us to meditate on the fact that God is a covenant-keeping God. God has made a covenant with us, the church, as well. And in bringing us into that covenant relationship, he will not abandon us. He will deliver us. He will destroy the enemy. And he will set us on high. And so let us pray that that day may come. Let us pray that those experiencing calamity even now would be rescued and set free. Let's pray. Father, Lord God, we thank you that we can come to your throne of grace. We thank you that we can plead our case, that we find mercy because of the covenant we have. And that covenant we have, that new covenant we are part of because of Jesus Christ, your Son, Because he died for our sins. He he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We thank you for that gospel of Jesus Christ. And we approach you because of him. And Father, we praise you that you are still on the throne. You are the high and holy one, the lifted up one, the heavenly one, the great one, the mighty God, the, the king of kings. And so, Father, we come to you. And we confess that, Father, we are a people who struggle. We are a people who find ourselves in calamities of our own doing. We also, Father, cry out because we find ourselves in calamities of no fault of our own. So, Father, if we have sinned, we repent. Father, if we have not sinned and yet there is a calamity that we are experiencing, even the calamities that we see throughout the world, Oh, Father, we cry out for mercy. We ask, Lord, that you would not be silent, that, Lord, you would not let the enemy roar, that you would not let the idolaters uh, blaspheme you, but instead, Father, that you would rise up, that you would come to the aid of your people, that you would protect us, that you might deliver us, whether it's in this life or the life to come. Thank you, Father, for saving us, for redeeming us from sin and from Satan. And Father God, we look forward to that great and glorious day when our redemption will be made complete. What a glorious day that will be because you are a glorious, mighty, powerful King. And to that we say, Amen.